Welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, featuring Professor Scott Douglas Gerber's new book, A Distinct Judicial Power, The Origins of an Independent Judiciary, 1606 to 1787. Thank you for tuning in. A Distinct Judicial Power analyzes the origins of judicial independence in the United States. The book sets forth both the political theory behind and the historical progression of independent judicial power in the United States during the colonial period. It concludes with an examination of how this mixture of theory and experience coalesced to produce Article III of the U.S. Constitution and a power of judicial review committed to the protection of individual rights. Scott Gerber, a professor at Ohio Northern University College of Law, is joined by critical commenter Jim Fander, a professor at Northwestern University School of Law, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Gerber and Vander. Hi, this is Scott Gerber. I'm a professor of law at Ohio Northern University, and I'm the author of A Distinct Judicial Power, The Origins of an Independent Judiciary, 1606 through 1787, that was published recently by Oxford University Press. I thought I would begin by simply mentioning why I wrote the book. This dates back a little more than a decade, and I had just finished writing my book about Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence. And during the course of some of my research on other matters, I kept coming across remarks by the great historian Gordon Wood that someone needs to write a book about the origins of judicial independence in America. And since that topic, at least as I conceive it, marries three of my intellectual interests, law, history, and political theory, I thought I would give it a try, and the result some 10 years later was a distinct judicial power. In terms of where that title comes from, it comes from John Adams's thoughts on government. Adams wrote as follows in his influential 1776 pamphlet, the dignity and stability of government in all its branches, the morals of the people, and every blessing of society depends so much upon an upright and skillful administration of justice that the judicial power ought to be distinct from both the legislative and executive and independent upon both, that so it may be a check upon both, as both should be checks upon that. In terms of the content of the book, I break it into three parts. The first part is the political theory on which an independent judiciary was based. My argument is that Adams, who was, in my judgment, the American founding's most sophisticated political theorist, was, of course, not writing on a blank slate. Rather, he was building on centuries of political theorizing about government institutions that preceded him. So chapter one of the book traces the intellectual origins of a distinct judicial power from Aristotle's theory of a mixed constitution to Adams's modifications of Montesquieu. It's a complicated story, but one that needed to be told. Chapter two describes the debates during the framing and ratification of the federal constitution regarding the independence of the federal judiciary. Part two of the book, which is the bulk of it, chronicles how each of the original 13 states and their colonial antecedents 
treated their respective judiciaries. This portion, presented in 13 separate chapters, brings together a wealth of information, charters, instructions, statutes, and so forth, about the judicial power between 1606 and 1787, and sometimes beyond. In the apt words of legal historian John Philip Reed, quote, American histories of judicial independence invariably begin with origins in the federal courts and pay slight or no heed to what was happening in the state that is a mistake, close quote. The subtitles to each of the chapters of my book are meant to highlight an intriguing aspect of the particular state's judicial history. For example, the subtitle to the North Carolina chapter is Governor Thomas Burke and the Origins of Judicial Review, a phrase that credits one of the non-judicial precedents for judicial review I discovered while researching the book. Part three of the book, the concluding segment, describes the influence the colonial and early state experiences had on the federal model that followed and on the nature of the regime itself. I explain how the political theory of an independent judiciary investigated in part one of the book and the various experiences of the original 13 states and their colonial antecedents examined in part two of the book culminated in Article Three of the U.S. Constitution. I also explain how the principle of judicial independence embodied by Article Three made the doctrine of judicial review possible and committed that doctrine to the protection of individual rights. And in that regard, with regard to the relationship between the origins of judicial review and the rise of judicial independence, I point out for example, that the two original states with the strongest precedents for judicial review, Virginia and North Carolina, also were the two with the most independent judiciaries. And as I try to document in the conclusion, surely this was not a coincidence. So that, in a nutshell, is the contents of the book. I also have an appendix to the book, and it's a rebuttal based on the history and political theory in the book to the current movement in constitutional theory for popular constitutionalism, which is an attempt by leading constitutional law scholars like Larry Kramer, Cass Sunstein, and Mark Tushnet to limit, or in Mark Tushnet's case, eliminate judicial review itself. And so the final point or observation I'd like to make are just some lessons that I think can be drawn from the book and I'm taking this part from the symposium that was recently published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy about my book, and these are my observations at the end of the symposium. And I just have four quick points I make there. The first one is that it would have been impossible to write a book like this until fairly recently because the data available to do it was not there. And thanks to the tremendous work of state archivists and librarians and the like, it's now possible for people to write syntheses of vast amount of colonial and early state legal materials. The second lesson that I think can be drawn from the book 
is about methodology. As everyone knows, Gordon Wood is, of course, the great early American historian of our day, and he's a historian. My training is in law. I teach in a law school and political science. I have a Ph.D. in political science. And so I conceptualize the project in a way differently than historians might. The third lesson that I think can be drawn from the book is about constitutional theory. The book is an exegesis in legal history, but as I try to describe in the appendix, there are lessons that can be learned about constitutional theory itself, and the example I use is, as I mentioned a minute ago, my critique of popular constitutionalism by arguing that the political theory that I demonstrate rebuts the policy arguments advanced by Mark Tushnet and Cass Sunstein to limit or eliminate judicial review, and the history I present in part two of the book, which is the longest part of the book by far, rebuts, in my judgment, the history presented by Stanford Law Dean Larry Kramer in his book, The People Themselves. And so my conclusion in constitutional theory terms is that the history and political theory on the question confirm the modern understanding of judicial review, that the primary purpose of the judiciary is to protect individual rights from threats from the majoritarian political processes. So with that, I'll just stop and turn it over to my friend Jim. Thank you, Scott. I just wanted to start perhaps with an introduction. My name is Jim Fander, and I teach at Northwestern University School of Law. Scott and I are both graduates of the University of Virginia Law School, so we have that in common as well as a common interest in the origins of an independent judiciary. That's something that I've been doing a fair amount of work on for many of the last years of my career as a law professor here. And I wanted to begin my response, if you will, to Scott's presentation and to his book with a few words of praise. I really think this is a very important book and one that I have enjoyed and used a good deal already, even though it only recently appeared from the presses at the Oxford University Press. It's not just that the book offers a great detailed account of the rise of the judicial system in each of the 13 colonies and demonstrates, as Scott said, how that growing commitment to judicial independence played itself out in different ways in different places, but it's also the organizing theory of independence that is supplied by the opening section devoted to, as Scott pointed out, early political theorists as well as to the work of John Adams. I think in my mind, one of the signal contributions of the book is its emphasis on the work of Adams and the contributions that his writing made to the theory of the independent judiciary. I think that is an important contribution in and of itself because, you know, as everyone knows, Adams wasn't in Philadelphia at the time the judicial article was written and, as a consequence, receives very little credit, I think, for the independence guarantees that appear in the final version of the U.S. Constitution that was struck off in 1787. So to restore Adams's political thought to a central point or a central place of understanding in the development of those institutions, I think, is quite an important contribution. The other thing that I quite like about the book is the state-by-state -state approach. And I'll just give you a quick example. I'm working on a paper right now that examines the work of the early judiciary and its handling of certain 
interjurisdictional conflicts, and there was a famous interjurisdictional conflict that arose in North Carolina, where Robert Morris, the famous financier of the Republic, was involved in some litigation down there and sought to remove his action from state to federal court using a common law writ of certiorari. And in the course of my work on that particular piece of litigation and in thinking about its implications for the operation of the new federal judicial system, I found it quite helpful, actually, to spend some time with Scott's book, and in particular the chapter on North Carolina, just to get a better sense of the North Carolina institutions, the players, the folks that were involved in the operation of that judicial system. And so I think it's going to be quite useful for scholars to have this treasure trove of information and this nice narrative description of the rise of judicial systems in each of the 13 colonies and states. So I suspect that Scott will find that his book is quite influential down the road as others turn to it to learn just a bit about what was going on at the time of the framing. So two and a half or three cheers for the book. I wouldn't do my job well if I didn't offer a few criticisms. And So let me sketch those for you very briefly, and then I welcome Scott's response. First, it might be seen by some readers that the exegesis on popular constitutionalism in the appendix is something of a distraction. And I worry for you, Scott, that it may lessen the significance of the book. One of the things that I really like about the book is that it seems to be a work of positive political theory and constitutional history, focusing on the rise of independence in each of these 13 colonies. And there's some interesting federalism implications to the emphasis on the independent developments in each of the states, I think, which are noteworthy as well. But to take that body of learning and then to use it as a way to enter the lists, as it were, in the debate over popular constitutionalism is to take on a potentially normative task and to enter into a political debate over constitutional politics as much as anything else that may distract the reader from the genuinely positive historical work that's done earlier on. And I guess my own worry for you, Scott, is that people who have already taken up a side in the debates over popular constitutionalism will find themselves gravitating either towards or away from your work, depending on how they come out on that particular subject. So that's, I guess, my worry for you. I also found myself wondering if the history that you marshal so ably in the earlier section of the book can as readily disprove the idea of popular constitutionalism as the appendix seems to suggest that it can. I'm not sure that an idea as amorphous as popular constitutionalism is one that can be proven or disproven in any event. And I am somewhat suspicious of the whole notion myself, as you probably would guess, based on my work about judicial hierarchy and independence and so forth. To some extent, it may have been a more effective strategy to highlight the areas of historical disagreement than to criticize the works that you target on historical grounds rather than sort of couching your criticism in terms of the overarching idea of popular constitutionalism. Another comment that takes the discussion in a slightly different direction is a comment about the choice of the state-by-state -state approach. Again, I think that was quite effective, and it contributes a great deal to the book. But we also know that there were efforts to unify, that those efforts were to some extent imposed by the center, by Mother England, as it were, and that those efforts to unify came in a variety of different ways, instructions to governors, decisions by the Privy Council on appeal, directives from the Board of Trade, and so forth. And we also know that late in the 18th century, before independence, but certainly in the latter perhaps half of that century, 
American law became quite a bit more anglicized because more and more English lawyers were arriving with crates full of books, and any colonial outpost is quite hungry for books. And so I think the arrival of the books and the English practitioners had an effect on the sort of anglicization, if you will, of American law. A number of people have identified that rise of reliance and emphasis on English sources in the later colonial period. And I wonder if the state-by-state approach to the exegesis doesn't tend to slight those more unifying themes, or at least make them a bit less visible to the eye of the reader. Another comment sort of picks up on some of my own work and asks the question whether hierarchy doesn't deserve a larger emphasis in the discussion of the rise of the judiciary. That's obviously something I've been quite interested in, and I perhaps self-interestedly was hoping that I could find more evidence one way or another on the issue of hierarchy in the discussion of the rise of the colonial judiciary. But it strikes me anyway, there's a hierarchy story to tell about judicial independence, and it's really not conceivable to have a truly independent judiciary without a certain hierarchy being introduced into it. And maybe there's a lesson in the experience of Georgia there, the the sort of relatively dependent and decentralized Georgian judiciary lacked a unifying head. A unifying head does a lot for a judiciary. It puts a few elite figures who obviously are folks with some political savvy and some political connection at the top of an institution that can lobby and angle for the institution's survival and defense. And it it may be that, you know, the rise of judicial review owes something to that as well as to the various other things that are represented in this very nice discussion of state judicial authority. Those are at least the comments that occurred to me as I was thinking both about Scott's overview and about my own reading of the book. Scott? Okay. Well, thank you, Jim. First, I appreciate the kind word. You're one of the leading scholars in the United States on the origins of Article Three and you've just proved that that was a good choice. Some reactions specifically to your point. I'm delighted that you appreciated my emphasis on Adams. I had no idea what I was going to find when I started the book. Unlike, as you know, law professors tend to have preconceived ideas and then try to write their work to back those up. You don't do that, I don't do that, and I certainly didn't do that with this. I just went where the information led me. And I also benefited along the way, as I mentioned in the acknowledgments, from the input I got from lots of scholars, conferences, and the like. And I'll just mention two in particular, not because the other 32 weren't extremely helpful. They were. But these two had transformative advice. One was Michael Les Benedict at Ohio State. And the first presentation I ever made about the book, and it was then early in its research phase, was to a workshop at Ohio State, and I was trying to resist talking about the origins of judicial review, because as you know, lots of people had written about that. But Michael convinced me that I had to do it, and I'm grateful for that, because the conclusion is about that, and just to mention one of the anonymous reviewers at Oxford, that person said there are two primary reasons to publish the book. One, no one had compiled the mass of data that I had in one place. Two, no one had ever linked the origins of judicial review to the rise of judicial independence like I did. So I was grateful to Michael's 
suggestion that I take that on. The other person was Mark Tushnet, who read the entire thing, and he had the same reaction to the popular constitutionalism bit that you did. And he said, when he read it, that was actually chapter one. And Mark said, listen, this is a great work of legal history. Keep it like that. The other bit, move it to an appendix, because there is a different tone and a different purpose to it. And so I took that advice, and luckily for me, one of the other reviewers at Oxford, their one suggestion was he should move Chapter 1 to the appendix, and all I had to do with the acquiring editor was mention that I had just finished doing that. And so that was very fortunate for me. I do, though, I needed to keep it in there because I'm not just a historian. I'm actually a law professor and a political theorist. And so I am in those modern debates. And that's just how I think. And so I left it in. And that also relates to something with regard to the current chapter one, and that's the chapter on Aristotle through John Adams. I was torn about including that because it's very complicated and quite dense. And that, too, has a different feel than part two of the book, which is the bulk of the book, the state-by-state exegesis. I decided to do it, though, after talking to George Avenbilius, the great peer of Gordon Wood, when he said to me, listen, Scott, it's your book. That's how you see the question. Treat it that way. And then luckily for me, Richard Epstein who along with Gordon Wood and Sandy Levinson gave nice blurbs for the back of the book, said that he really enjoyed that and learned a lot from it. After the book was published, your colleague Steve Calabrese was saying nice things to me about it, and I mentioned that I was always wondering whether I should have put Chapter 1 in there, and he said he was glad that I did. So on that one, I think I made the right choice. So on the state-by-state bit, I just want to read something from what I regard as my favorite book in early American law. And that's by George Lee Haskins, 1960 is the publication date. And the title of the book is Law and Authority in Early Massachusetts, A Study in Tradition and Design. And I mention this and quote this in the preface. The beginnings of American law are to be sought in the colonial period the formative era during which the needs of a new civilization molded traditional ideas and practices into 13 distinct legal systems. The search, however, is neither easy nor simple. The colonies differed greatly in background, in the conditions of settlement, and in the forms of government they adopted. Moreover, the social and political development of each proceeded, for the most part, along different lines, Hence, it is essential that the character and growth of the several colonial legal systems be studied individually and be separately described. And so that's why I did it. And in the footnote, I also point out that Richard Morris made the same point as did George Billius. So that's why I did it, because I actually agree with Professor Haskins, and I think part two confirms his point how they're each different, and they each have their own story to be told. And on this point about uniformity and unity and all of that, which is the great strength of your work, I benefit greatly from your work 
I cite you many a time in Chapter 2 when I'm talking about the federal ratifying and framing conventions. But as I mentioned at the end of the book in the conclusion, my position as a scholar is that monolithic explanations of historical events should be resisted. And so this is just my take on it. It doesn't mean that there aren't other explanations for the origins of judicial review, for example. I'm just convinced that mine is at least a very powerful explanation. I concede that there are others, and I think we all benefit when we let a hundred or a thousand flowers bloom. But this is just where my research took me. As I said a minute ago, I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea it would take me uh, decades to get there. Gordon Wood did warn me in 1999 when I emailed him about my interest in taking this on. He said, it's going to take you a long time. And I've had lunch with him a couple of times since then, and I told him he was right. <laughs> but the amazing thing for me, and I'll end with this, this confirms, in my opinion, my state-by-state -state approach. I never got bored doing it, not once, mm -hmm. because each state was so different. Let me just make a comment or two in response, and then we can bring this to a close. The first is that I don't necessarily disagree with the choice of the state-by-state -state approach. I think there's a great deal to say for it, as I indicated in my own remarks. I guess what I was trying to suggest is that there might be some gains from doing some cross-cutting or thematic analysis to tie some experiences together across the states. And so to the extent that one were able to focus on uniform directives that came from the center, decisions of the Board of Trade or other kinds of unifying considerations or the arrival of English lawyers and the impact that that might have had, then taking a more continental vantage on those kinds of developments might have deepened the assessment of each of the individual state accounts. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that you should have adopted a different approach, nor am I criticizing the approach that you did adopt, because as I said myself, I found it quite fruitful in my own work. And the second comment is just a worry about misinterpretation. I wasn't suggesting that you should have adopted a more hierarchical approach or indeed that you should have relied on my work more extensively, not at all and not for a minute. I was only somewhat selfishly hoping that you'd found more evidence for my hierarchical theories <laughs> in the work that you did. But you're absolutely right. A historian has to tell the story that he finds reflected in the sources, and I wouldn't want you to have done it any other way. Right, and I'll just respond very briefly. My book is a long look at separation of powers theory. So mine's horizontal, not vertical. And my essential point is that judicial independence is the American contribution to separation of powers theory, and that John Adams perfected that contribution, and then early American judges later used their independence to have the institutional security they needed to exercise judicial review, which I characterize as the ultimate expression of judicial independence. So the book is really an exegesis in separation of powers theory. And I think that message comes through very nicely. Thank you, Scott, for the book and for the opportunity to participate. Well, thank you too, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this faculty book podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website, 
at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.